Good evening, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 153. Tonight we continue our journey through the Gospel of John, and we pick up where we left off in John chapter 12. This is the middle of a speech by Jesus, and as I said last time, I don't like to to stop in the middle of Jesus speaking, or in the middle of any story, really. I like to get the thought finished and, and get that segment finished. But this this segment in the latter half of John chapter 12 is, is long, and Jesus addresses several really important things here. So I've kind of split it up. Um, we're going to start today in verse 27. John chapter 12, verse 27. In our last segment, the Greeks asked to meet Jesus. His disciples passed that request along, and Jesus goes into this, this speech about this is the end. We're at crunch time here, and those who want to meet me need to come follow me because I'm not going to be here forever. So there's this, this idea of if you're coming, come now. And if they want to meet me, let them follow. This is not meet and greet time. And then in verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said himself, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And we'll stop right there. Again, it's the middle of a thought because the crowd is going to ask him about, we thought you were the Messiah and how can the Messiah die? But there's some significant thoughts in this, this little section that I really want to tackle because they're important and, and they're diverse. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. This is the first indication that we get that Jesus is struggling with what he has to do. He knows the plan. The devil doesn't know the plan. No one on earth knows the plan. The Father and the Son are the only ones that know the plan. And, and so Jesus understands the task that's upon him. Now my soul is troubled. Literally, I think the Greek means now there's thunder in my soul. Um, it's really an interesting word picture that there's a storm going on inside of Jesus over how this is supposed to play out. The fact that he has to endure the cross. And here's the first 
hint of the Garden of Gethsemane struggle, right? And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. So he's saying these things to people who don't have a clue what he's talking about when he says them. They don't know the argument within himself. They don't know why he's troubled. They don't know what he's facing. They don't know if there are options or what the options might be. They have no clue what he's talking about. You and I on this side of the cross, we know exactly what he's talking about. But the people to whom he spoke these words would have been, I mean, this is more than the typical Johannine confusion. They're lost. Wait, what? for what hour? What is this hour? Why did you come? What, what are you trying to get out of? Father, save me from what? They can't have an idea what he's talking about. But he's letting them, he's letting you and I as well, see that this totally human, totally God person struggles with the the tension between the godliness of his being and the humanity of his being and the fact that as he just said in the previous paragraphs that humanity that that piece that kernel has to die if it doesn't it can't bear the fruit that he came to bear your salvation and mine fruit that he's going to speak more of here in just a a sentence or two so this is Jesus showing you the struggle when we're going through something that's frustrating a lot of times we look at our friends and say yes the struggle is real this is Jesus saying the struggle is real but he's not joking He's not passing it off. He's letting everyone around him know, this troubles me. What has to come next is keeping me awake at night. It worries me that that it all goes well, that, that it all accomplishes the purposes that it was accomplished, it was meant to accomplish. Father, glorify your name. Through whatever's coming, through whatever I have to do, Father, glorify your name. And in that moment of his deep struggle and his probably some doubt, probably some fear, in this moment when he most needs to hear the Father's voice, a voice comes from heaven. Now, interestingly, the Bible doesn't say it's God's voice. doesn't say it's an angel's voice. just doesn't say. It's just described as a voice from heaven. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. That's all the voice says. So, it's probably God speaking because Jesus appealed to God, Father, glorify your name. And the voice says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The only one really with that power would be God, right? So, this is probably God speaking. I think that's what we're supposed to to gather from this. What does he mean he's glorified his name previously? 
Well, for that, you can turn to any number of passages of Scripture in the Old and New Testaments. The heavens declare the glory of God. He glorified his name in creation. Not only in creation, but in the formation of his people Israel, of their calling, of their promise, of their covenant, of their keeping, of their forgiveness again and again and again, of calling them out of Egypt, of taking care of them in the wilderness, of bringing them across the Red Sea, of bringing them through all of the enemies in the land, finally getting into the promised land, only by God's grace. If he treated them fairly, he would have extinguished them out in the desert, faithless, whiny bunch of people. But God has established his glory in the pillar of cloud and in the pillar of fire. He has established his glory in the, in the family story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of all the descendants of Solomon and David, of all that has transpired in Israel to the day that Jesus is speaking, through through exile and restoration, through, through winnowing down to a small remnant and then restoring them again. God has glorified his name over and over and over. And he says, and I will again. He's answering Jesus' specific prayer. Now, only God and the Son know what they're talking about, right? Because if the, if the kings of this age had known the plan of our salvation, they never would have let Jesus go to the cross. That's a supernatural saying. That's not about the king of Rome or the king of Greece or the king of England. It, it's about powers and principalities in spiritual places. God says, I have glorified my name in the past, and I will again. Jesus, you've asked that I glorify your name through the things that are about to happen, and I'm telling you, I will. I have. You see the evidence of that. You can have faith. I will again. This act, this, this plan won't go for naught. It won't, it won't amount to nothing. I will honor it just as we've planned. And then Jesus says to the crowd, this voice, oh, well, I'm sorry, I skipped one. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So this sound was audible, but indistinguishable to, to their ears. Some thought it was thunder. Some said an angel spoke. Don't know what he said. Jesus says, this voice was for your benefit but they don't understand what it said. It was not for their benefit. It was for his. It was an answer to his direct prayer. Father, glorify your name. Son, I have, and I'm going to again. You keep the faith. You stay on track. I'm here with you, and we will accomplish our purpose here. It was absolutely for Jesus' benefit. And then Jesus says, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Well, then why couldn't they understand it? Johannine confusion. They just missed it. They could have understood it had they been attuned to it and listening to it, but they weren't, and so they didn't. See, 
It's part of that confusion theme. So Jesus then gets to explain to them what the voice is talking about. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Wow. I was always taught that the judgment was coming way out in the future somewhere. That the judgment was going to be had in the sweet by and by when there's pie in the sky. Right? It, it, judgment isn't something that happens now. Judgment isn't something that's already happened. It's, it's yet to come, right? We, we've yet to face our judgment. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, now is the time for judgment. And, and lest we get ahead of ourselves a little bit, I do want to ask you to catch a vision of the cross real quickly. Because that's where we're going. You and I reading this story know that. The gospel was written after the cross. So when John writes this, he knows that you and I reading this account understand it already in the context of the cross. Now is the time for judgment. Well, what is judgment? Judgment is dividing the truth from the falsehood. When you go in front of a judge, you're you're cross-examined. The facts of the case are brought out and, and illustrated and, and, and supported by testimony. And each of those who testifies is cross-examined to further refine the truth and the fact. That's what judgment is, dividing the truth from the appearance or the lie. Jesus says, now is the time for judgment. We're about to clearly delineate between what is true and what is not what is real, and what is only an appearance. We're about to define truth in a way that's never been done before, will never be done again, and will last eternally. Judgment is about to happen. And that judgment takes place on the cross. The cross becomes the dividing line in history, in humanity, in, in righteousness, in everything. The cross serves as the dividing line. Christ becomes the pivot point of history. It's really interesting to me. I teach young people and, and I teach science. And so we talk about we talk about things in terms of BC and AD. Those are the old terms. Before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. So the birth of Christ becomes this dividing line. And before Christ, we're counting backwards, and after Christ, we're counting forward, and Jesus is the pivot point. Well, the secular scientific world didn't like that Jesus was the pivot point, and so they changed the terms to BCE, before the Common Era, and CE, in the Common Era. BCE and CE, what's the pivot point? Um... Jesus Christ is still the pivot point. They change the letters, but the truth is exactly the same. Jesus is the turning point of all history. Secular and religious and everything on either side of the spectrum in every direction. Jesus is the pivot point. He is the judgment. It is on his life that everything else turns, that the previous covenants are honored and fulfilled and that the new covenant 
in his blood is written with the people who will be Israel, who by coming to Christ and having their judgment held that day, they become Israel. You understand that that on the day that you come to Jesus Christ, you, our language, you confess your sin, right? Confess your sin and come to Christ. That's that's the invitation we give to people. And if we pray with them a form prayer, it always starts, Lord, I'm a sinner. It starts with a confession. No one confesses their sin in court except to invite the verdict, right? If I confess, it's to say, let's get this over with. I am I acknowledge that I'm guilty. I confess my guilt. Let's have the verdict now. Let's get this over with. When I come to Christ, I confess my sin and my need for Christ, and I ask him to be my Lord and Savior. I have confessed my sin. It has been judged in that moment by the Father with the Son standing right there saying, Father, I paid the price for this one. This one admits his guilt, but his price has been paid. I paid it. You see, that's that's the plea bargain. That's what you get for the confession, for admitting that you're a sinner, for, for coming to the side of honesty, for now dividing the truth from the deception in your own life and not pointing fingers or blaming anybody else or or avoiding the blame any longer, but to accept the blame and to confess the sin. The grace then is that the sacrifice of Christ is appropriated to your life and to your record, to your account. And and the truth becomes God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our account that in him, that by by living in him, by standing in him, by 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 working in him, by being in him, we might become the very righteousness of God. Impossible on our own. But when I come to Christ and I confess my sin and I invite my judgment, God imparts to me a righteousness I could never have earned, deserved, or carried out on my own. His righteousness is imparted to me and my life begins to experience the very righteousness of God. And I begin to express that same righteousness, the very righteousness of God, because I'm now in Christ. My judgment has been had. There won't be a great white throne judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. They're standing there in the book of Revelation in their white robes, counted with crowns on their heads, They are part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ already. They were from the day they asked him into their life. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says. not making that up. You won't stand judgment if you know Jesus Christ. Your judgment has already been had and you were found guilty. And the penalty was delivered onto Christ on that cross. And you, my friend, have gone free. Hallelujah.
praise the Lord. Your judgment was had and you were found guilty. And Christ stepped in and paid your price so that you could go free. What do we owe him? (laughs) What would it ever take to repay that? I never can. It was a debt I couldn't pay. A price I couldn't come up with. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. All. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. What's he talking about there? The prince of this world will be driven out? It's really tempting for us to say, God doesn't control this world. Or God doesn't rule this world. It's two really different things. It's really tempting in this day and age especially to look at the world and say, the devil rules here. The devil rules this earth. The devil controls what happens here. Again, they're two different things. Does the devil control what's happened here or what happens here? To a great extent, yes. Yes. Not because he's powerful, but because people have abdicated the authority that was theirs through the birthright of Adam, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with with David, the covenant with Jacob, through all of these covenants that God has, has put into place to pass on the birthright of Adam to you and I, all along the way people have abdicated that authority. They've handed it to a snake. Remember him? Yeah. In, book, in the book of Revelation, it calls him that old that old serpent, that old snake, the devil. Obviously tying the book of Revelation to the book of Genesis and the snake in the garden. Now the king, the prince of this world, now the prince of this world will be driven out. Why is he the prince of this world? Because people have abdicated their authority to him. They've given up their Adamic birthright to rule in dominion over creation and by by idol worship, by antichristism, by by seeking financial gain, by seeking spiritual power through divination, through Ouija boards, through magic, through fortune tellers, through whatever means they try to shortcut God. Every time somebody does that, they hand over a bit more of the power of the dominion of this world. They hand that over to the enemy. And so he established himself as the prince of this world on abdicated power, handed to him by people who gave it away seeking to benefit still happens today. Look at the authority given away in the capitals of the nations of this world for financial gain, 
for political power. Look at what they sell. Yes, their souls. And when they do that, they abdicate the power that that soul was supposed to have for dominion over this world. They hand that dominion over to the enemy. And Jesus says, now the prince of the world will be driven out. Now his power will be broken once and for all. And on the cross it was, which makes it all the more sad that to this day people abdicate their power to the devil. It's why there's a book of Revelation, you see. It's why there will be uprisings of evil and that the uprising of evil will increase on the face of the world as people lose sight of God because they'll abdicate more and more power to the broken one, to the one whose head has been smashed by the woman's son's heel. And yet, people hand him power. That snake will be driven out. And then there's another snake picture here. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, you remember the, the story from, from the Israelites wandering in the desert between Egypt and the Promised Land and, and these these fire-breathing serpents. They, they bite with fire, not with fangs. It's not, just, it's not just pain that they inflict, it's fire. Really interesting. And in some contexts, they're flying fiery serpents in Egypt. Um, there's, a, there's a reputable, well-known Roman historian who writes that in Egypt, east of the Wadis, there is this race, this species of flying fiery serpents. Kind of crazy, right? I mean, it's a reputable historian. It's not some mythology. They write as though it, you walk down there and they'll get you. It's really interesting. And here's this kind of parallel story in the Exodus that the Israelites are suddenly beset by these vipers with fire in their bite. And in order to, to free them from the power of those serpents, Moses fashions a staff with a, with a figure of a snake on top of it, and he raises it up. He raises it up as the symbolic snake who will die so that they will all die. That snake on the pole represents the death of all snakes so that there can be healing for everyone who's ever been bitten by a snake. It's why, to this day, the medical symbol, the symbol for medicine in this world is, interestingly enough, a snake on a pole, and the snake has wings. Kind of interesting, isn't it? I forget the name. There's a particular, you know, proper name for that symbol. But, but that symbol, the symbol of medicine, comes from that time in the desert when that figure of a snake was raised up so that, so that symbolically the snakes would die, that snake would die and they all would die, and healing could come to the people from the fiery bites. Jesus draws the parallel or, or shows you the obverse, actually. It's the flip side, right? That snake was raised up on the pole to kill all the snakes. 
Jesus says, but, but I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. The snake is going to die. And men are going to come to me when I'm lifted up. There will finally be healing for all the nations. Biblical prophecy. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So he's talking about not only the kind of death he's going to die, but what it will accomplish. It will be the death of the serpent and all the serpents that are affiliated with him, all the demons, all the little G gods, all the demigods, all the mythological heroes, all those crazy things are gone once there's a cross and their power is broken. And the only way they get any power is if you consciously hand it to them. Don't do that. He's not just talking about dying on the cross. He's, a, he's talking about what it will affect, what it will accomplish when he dies on the cross. Judgment will be had in that moment. And, and it's really interesting. If you look at the crucifixion, we'll talk about it more as we get there. Let me plant the seeds right now so you can start to look at what happens in the crucifixion and the resurrection. The resurrection. Jesus dies on the cross, and at the moment that he dies, there's an earthquake, there's a storm, and the curtain in the temple is rent from top to bottom. The curtain that had divided people from the Holy of Holies, where, where God's presence dwelt, is torn open. And we've always kind of constructed this to say, well, now the way is open to the Father. What we've never paid attention to is the fact that God was not behind the curtain anyway. I want you to think about this. The Spirit of God dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant as they wandered through the desert. And the Ark was housed in a tent called the Tabernacle. And God's presence dwelled in that box. And when they, when they came into the promised land and they constructed a temple they put the box inside the holy of holies in the temple a reconstruction of the tabernacle and they put a curtain there so that you wouldn't be looking at the presence of god and and go blind or whatever would happen to you it was more to protect us than it was to cloister god away but when israel falls to the babylonians What's that? Roughly 700 years before Christ. When Israel falls to the Babylonians and they demolish the temple, Ezekiel says the Spirit of God leaves the temple, tarries for a moment on the top of the Mount of Olives, and then in a chariot of fire rides off to join his people in exile, to be with his people. But it leaves the temple, and I cannot find a place in the scripture after that where there's any mention of the Spirit of God being heavy, being obvious, being known, being real in the temple. I can't find a single piece of evidence that God ever went back to the box. 
And I think that when the veil is rent, at the moment Jesus dies, that curtain is torn wide open and it becomes clear for everyone to see God is not in the box. And then the Bible says, and we'll talk about this as we get there, but the Bible says that the graves of many righteous people who had died were opened, and in the next several days, they are seen walking around in Jerusalem. I just want you to think about what that says. God's not in the box. Before Jesus is knowing before we know that Jesus is resurrected three days later, before that happens, people are resurrected. People are resurrected. Then Jesus is resurrected and says, don't touch me. Haven't gone to the Father yet. Then he's gone for a day or two, and then he comes back, and Thomas is there, and Jesus says, okay, now you can touch me. Put your finger inside my hands. Put your hand inside my side. See, it's really me. But now they can touch him because he's returned from the Father. Jesus has returned from the Father. He came as a baby. He came back when he was resurrected, and now he has returned. How many second comings do there have to be? I don't know that that's the last coming of Christ. In fact, I think the last coming of Christ happens in a different way. We'll talk about that when we get there too. But I want you to start thinking in a bigger sense about these things that we have been taught in ways that are not represented in the Bible. Nothing in the Bible says that once the curtain was torn open, we could get to God. Because there was nothing in our way of getting to God except ourselves before that, see? And I can't find any evidence. Search the scripture with me. I can't find any evidence after the Spirit of God leaves the temple in Ezekiel that it ever comes back. They don't worship idols ever again, but the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the high priests, they all turn God worship into a different idol. They turn the temple into an idol and they turn the law into an idol. They don't worship any other gods, but they turn God worship into idol worship. Not, not in spirit and truth, as Jesus says to the woman at the well. So I know they're big thoughts to leave you with. And, and typically I ask you to, to take some encouragement into your day and, and live in that encouragement. Today I'm going to leave you with a bunch of unanswered questions because I want these seeds to start to take root in your, in your heart. And I want you to dive into your Bible and prove me wrong. See if I'm not telling you the truth. Jesus said, now's the time for judgment. Here's a really good thought. If you're a Christian, your judgment's already been had and you were found guilty and Christ stepped in and said, for this one, the price has been paid and you walked free. And today, you're still walking free and having abundant life because of the price Jesus paid for you. So I think it's really important that as we work the rest of the way through the Gospel of John, 
we have an eye to understanding exactly what it is that Jesus purchased for us on that cross. Because I would submit to you and start start thinking with me on this, but I would submit to you, it's a whole lot more than we've ever realized. Now with all those questions, go have a great day.